This message is not a Father's Day's message, although it's Father's Day today. I'm told that I'm not a good father to my kids. Because uh, earlier on during the first service, while the kids are downstairs celebrating Father's Day in Sunday school, I'm, I'm up here preaching. So I hardly qualify to give a Father's Day message. But since today is Father's Day, let me just share two jokes on fathers. Dads, two dads who can't make it. This one is submitted by someone to a website. And it goes as follows. My father was completely lost in the kitchen and never ate unless someone prepared a meal for him. When mother was ill, however, he volunteered to go to the supermarket for her. She sent him off with a carefully numbered list of seven items. So dad returned shortly, very proud of himself, and proceeded to unpack the grocery bags. He had one bag of sugar, two dozen eggs, three hams, four boxes of detergent, five boxes of crackers, six eggplants, and seven green peppers. I'm waiting for a reaction, but I'm getting some quizzical looks. Okay, maybe this one easier to understand. After putting their three-year-old child, Brian, in bed, his parents heard muffled sobs coming from his room one night. Rushing back in, they found that the child was crying hysterically when he saw them. He told his parents that he had accidentally swallowed a penny and was sure that he would die now. The father, in an attempt to sober him down, took out a penny from his pocket and pretended to pull it out from Brian's ears. The child was really thrilled and he stopped crying at once. But in a flash, he snatched, the, he snatched the penny from his father's hand, swallowed it, and then cheerfully demanded, Dad, let's do it again. Slow lah. If these two incidents happened to me, my 10-year-old son who's in the audience would say, Fail! Let's talk about Psalm 119. Change subject. There are a few things that you should know about this psalm. First of all, it is the longest chapter in the whole Bible, 176 verses. And it's a psalm which really tests our patience. Why? Because it's not just the length, 176 verses, that's, that's very, very long. It's not just the length that you find challenging, it's, it's, also, it's also quite boring when you read it. Because by the time you get to verse 45, you kind of like want to give up. Why do you want to give up? Because there seems to be no sequence, no, no plot, no direction. When you read a storybook, you are eager to find out the plot. When you watch a movie, you are eager to see how the story unfolds. But when you read Psalm 119, until you read right to the very end, even until you read right to the very end, you realize that you don't really know what he's talking about because he seems to jump from one thing to another. And the main reason why the psalm appears to be so aimless, and this is the second point. So the first point is it's a long psalm, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And the second point is this, it's an acrostic poem. You may ask, what's an acrostic poem? Well, an acrostic is a literary device where each successive letter of the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on, is used to begin a line, a new line. So here's an example using the word father. Funny like a comedian, always ready to help me, takes me to the movies, happy to play with me, everyone can count on him, 
really loved by his family. I'm not, that's not a description of me. I'm huh? just using this as an example. So as you can see, an acrostic is a bit contrived. It's a bit artificial because you've got to squeeze all those words and phrases into a kind of a pattern. And then you take that idea and apply it to Psalm 119. You know the Hebrew alphabet has 26, no, sorry, 22 letters. Four less than the English alphabet. And all 176 verses of Psalm 119 are divided into 22 sections of eight verses each. You look at your English Bibles, you will see that Psalm 119 are broken into sections of eight verses each. You can imagine what a real challenge it is for the writer to write an acrostic poem with that kind of a structure. It's really complicated. But, but you also realize that there is in fact a theme that ties all 176 verses together. And that theme, this is the third point I want to make, that theme is the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for the word of God, the law. And there are at least seven words in Psalm 119, and not just in Psalm 119, but other Psalms that are used by the psalmist to describe Torah. Word, law, statutes, decrees, command, or commandments. But whichever word you use, the intention is clear. The Word of God, the Scripture, should be at the center of everything we do, everything we say, and everything we think, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our jobs, in our schools, in our entire lives. And as you read through Psalm 119, you will realize that there is nothing half-hearted about this pilgrim, this writer, this psalmist. His whole being is devoted to the Word of God. He speaks of his eyes, he speaks of his lips, his mouth, his hands, his feet, his voice, his tongue, completely involved with the Word of God. And as you read the psalm, you will feel his moods. He rejoices, he's happy, sometimes he weeps, he's sad. He's sometimes on a high, sometimes he's on a low. He may be surrounded by friends. At times, he feels himself surrounded by enemies. At times, he's very sure about his stand for the truth and for what is right. While at other times, he freely admits that only grace can rescue him from failure. And you know, life is like that, isn't it? Such experiences, ups and downs, a roller coaster that we go through can happen to any one of us the one stable factor in our unpredictable lives is the unchanging Word of God. As he says in verse 89, Your Word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. So that's the third point. The fourth point is this. Psalm 119 is a psalm for pilgrims or people who go on a journey. And if you read it carefully, you will realize that there are many allusions, many references to movement. And the language of this psalm is the language of a pilgrimage that the psalmist is on. At the beginning, in verse 10, he says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. Verse 19, I'm only a foreigner in the land. That's from the New, Lang uh, New Living Translation. 
Verse 32, I run in the path of your commands. Verse 101, I have kept my feet from every evil path. So all those words underlined tells us that the psalmist is on a journey. He is a pilgrim. So keep these two things in mind. The one is the psalm is about the word of God. Number two, the psalm is really about a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage of the pilgrim. And as you read this psalm, if you keep these two things in mind, I think you will find that it makes a little bit more sense to you. So let us join our pilgrim friend on this journey. And as we do so, we will consider four different aspects by which the word of God has shaped this pilgrim. Number one, it's a pilgrim whose heart is captured. Number two, he's a pilgrim whose mind is enlightened. Number three, he's a pilgrim whose will is fixed. And number four, he's a pilgrim whose feet are sure. Where does our pilgrimage start? For most of us, for all of us, it starts when we recognize our sin and then we turn from our sin in repentance to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. But as we do so, we discover something about the greatness of the love of Christ and we find our own heart moved in our desire to do the will of God. We become pilgrims because our hearts are captured, captured by this great and wonderful God we have come to know and love. You might have probably heard of this guy, Stephen Hawking. He's a famous and brilliant Cambridge physicist. They say he's a successor to Albert Einstein. And Stephen Hawking wrote a bestseller some years back called A Brief History of Time. Now, there's a movie about him that I happened to watch on one of those long airplane flights I took. It's called The Theory of Everything. Stephen Hawking is played by the British actor Eddie Redmayne who is a Cambridge PhD student, falls in love with a fellow student in Cambridge known as Jane Wilde, played by British actress Felicity Jones. They got married, and over time, as Hawking uncovers the mysteries of the universe, he also develops motor neuron disease, which causes him to lose control over his muscles bit by bit until he ends up as a twisted man in a wheelchair. And he needs help for all his daily chores, like eating, washing, going to the toilet, being carried to bed, and so on and so forth. And in the end, he even lost his ability to speak, and he needed a special computerized synthesizer attached to his wheelchair that could convert typewritten text. He just types his text and his words, and then the computer, the synthesizer, makes it into electronic speech. So he speaks like a robot. Jane Wilde, by now his wife, stands by him all the way. He does practically everything, including bringing up four very active children, while Stephen Hawking just concentrates on his research and his work. Now, modern women, modern professional women probably would not accept the kind of a lifestyle. It's physically demanding because he has to carry her husband. Even though he's contorted and twisted, he still can be heavy. Emotionally draining because of the kids, because he has no one, she has no one to confide with her problems and psychologically crippling. It's a very touching love story if you watch the movie. Not entirely accurate, but it doesn't matter. And for Jane Wilde, the movie shows that it started with hot flushes and romantic highs when the two first met in Cambridge. But she endures great hardship through sheer commitment to her physically useless husband with a lot of brains, uh, a lot of grey matter, 
but pretty much nothing else. There are twists to the plot towards the end, but I'll move that, I'll, I'll leave that aside. You know, the, the pilgrims' love story with the Lord is, is a bit like that. Man falls in love with a woman, no mountain is too tall, no valley is too deep for them to cross. When we receive Christ, we find ourselves like Jane Wow, on fire, deeply in love with God, whom we discover more and more each day just how much He loved us. But over time, that relationship with God is tested by difficulties and trials. And what will bind us to God is really His love for us, but also our commitment to Him. God is our lover. The gospel story is the, gospels, is the story of a love story that God has with us. And one analogy of our relationship with God in the Old Testament is that God is the jealous husband of Israel who will not share Israel with any false god or idol. Read the book of Hosea and the Song of Songs and see for yourself. And Isaiah 54 verse 5 tells us, for your maker is your husband. Sorry. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. And likewise, in the New Testament, the book of Revelation pictures the church as the bride of Christ. And we will all be invited one day to the great marriage feast of the Lamb. And as we sung earlier on just now, and Minwei led us in worship, the riches of your love is always enough. And so out of that love relationship, the pilgrim sets out on his spiritual journey. Secondly, a pilgrim is one whose mind is enlightened. Right? His heart is captured, his mind is enlightened. To be a pilgrim, a man must be a disciple. And to be a disciple, he must be teachable. But the psalmist is aware of his own limitation and he always constantly cries out to God for help. Eight times in Psalm 119, in verse 12, 26, 33, 64, 68, 124, 135, and 171, he prays, teach me your decrees. Teach me your decrees. And it is not enough to have an emotional relationship with God as our lover. The pilgrim must have an enlightened mind and constantly learning. But this learning is not just accumulating knowledge or content. The end goal of learning for the Christian is discipleship, to be more and more like Christ. And he learns by doing, by being an apprentice to the Lord, and by suffering. And through it all, the Word of God is his teacher. Verse 105 is a very well-known verse. It tells us that the Word of God is a lamb unto his feet. And the image here is one of walking. When we walk, we do so step by step, right? And here in Singapore, we seldom focus on our feet while we are walking. In fact, we often focus on the wrong things. But the pilgrim, during those early days, in biblical times, walking in the wild does not have roads that are paved with asphalt like we have in Singapore and elsewhere. So he must always look down to see where he's going, or else he may stumble, especially at night when there's no light. He needs a lamp so that he can see where he's going 
Otherwise, he may stumble and fall. When we walk by the Spirit, there is a lamp from God's Word for each step. If we obey it, there will be light for the next step and the next and the next. But sometimes we worry too much about the step after next and the next and the next. We worry too much about that. It doesn't mean that we should not plan ahead for the future. But it does mean that we should, as Jesus warned his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, not to be anxious for tomorrow. Instead, we should remember who holds all our tomorrows in his hand. And this is an important lesson for the pilgrim to learn. In fact, the pilgrim knows that he has no ability in himself. Even when he walks with the word of God, the lamp in his hands. And so he prays in verse 133, direct my steps according to your word and let no sin rule over me. And we would never be able to keep the word of God, however hard we try, apart from the grace that God gives us for the journey. Sorry. Verse 29. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me and teach me your law. So, heart captured, mind enlightened. Thirdly, a pilgrim is one whose will is fixed. The pilgrim knows that the will of God is unchanging because God is sovereign and no opposition can change it. And the pilgrim has come to love God's will and is determined by God's grace that he will live by that will. This is what he says, verse 106, I have taken an oath and have confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. So his will, the pilgrim's will, is to obey the word of God. But where does he get his strong will from? Is he himself a man of unwavering determination and steadfastness? My family and I were on holiday in New York recently and we had the chance to watch a little musical in Broadway called Matilda. Some of you might have read the book by Rodal or you've seen this. It's based on a story by, by Rodal about this girl, Matilda, who was unwanted from birth by her parents. Uh, her parents' name is uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wormwood. Uh, so Matilda was a sort of an accident. But Matilda develops an unusual intelligence from an early age, and she loved to read. Read all kinds of books, literature, language, science, and so on and so forth. And her father, Mr. Wormwood, is a swindler. I mean, with a name like that, you kind of like guess, right? And he dislikes Matilda. And he calls her boy. And then he has, and she has to reply, I'm a girl. I'm not a boy. I'm a girl. And Mr. Wormwood would label her as useless and confine her to her room for reading her books, and he treats her as surplus to requirements. Her mother, Mrs. Wormwood, is only concerned with her looks and winning flamenco dance competitions. So it must be really awful to have parents like that. But that's not all. In school, Matilda has to face a very sadistic headmistress and former Olympic hammer-throwing champion, very butch-looking Miss Trunch Bull who believes that children are maggots and nothing but trouble. 
And she thinks of all kinds of wicked punishment to break the will of the pupils and make them obey. But Matilda did not crumble. Instead, she fought back against her parents and against this wicked headmistress. So despite her young age, she had, she had such inner strength and was very determined and unbending. So, is that how a pilgrim develops a fixed will? By being a man or a woman of unyielding determination? No. The pilgrim knows that his own steadfast intentions, however sincere, however firm, can never be carried through by human effort alone. He knows that he can never be so determined and firm unless he is convinced that for him, everything, everything will be made to contribute to the success of his pilgrim journey. It is his faith in the sovereignty of God's will that makes him a man of fixed will. And so the resolve to obey God's will is rooted in his faith in God. We all know this verse in Romans 8.28, don't we? It's a verse that we love to quote so much because it's so comforting. And it says, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. The Apostle Paul prefaced his statement with the claim, We know. And our psalmist, our pilgrim friend, makes an equally confident statement in verse 75. I know. Lord, that your laws are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So the pilgrim knows by faith that God is working out his purpose, which includes afflictions and hardships. And that faith, that faith gives him confidence. Finally, captured heart, enlightened mind, firm will, feet steady. The pilgrim needs to be persistent. Two words constantly occur in Psalm 119. They're translated as keep and observe. And these two words tell us of the pilgrim's awareness of the need to press on. No, the final test for every Christian is not, as Isaiah 40, 31 says, uh, this is the verse that we like to quote very often, that we soar on wings like eagles, and not even to run and not grow weary, but simply to walk, and not be faint. It's like the title from, from one Christian author, Eugene Peterson. One of his books is entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's old English, nah? A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. But it kind of describes the Christian life for all of us, right? The Christian life is one long obedience in the same direction, following the Word of God. And at times, the pilgrim confesses that he can hardly keep going and is on the verge of collapse. Verse 25, I'm laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. Verse 28, my soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. And not only that, the pilgrim faces many enemies. Verse 23, rulers sit together and slander me. Verse 51, the arrogant mock me unmercifully. Verse 78, they have wronged me without cause. Verse 85, the arrogant mock me unmercifully. The same verse again. 
Verse 110, the wicked have set a snare for me. And so the pilgrim is all too conscious of his own shortcomings. And at the end, at the end of this very long psalm, after 176 verses, the traveller, this pilgrim, has not yet arrived. In fact, he makes a very surprising confession in the first part of that last verse, verse 176. After all he has gone through, he says, I have strayed like a lost sheep, as though all the effort from the preceding 175 verses have amounted to nothing. I have strayed like a lost sheep right at the very end. But he does not give up. His feet are steady. He makes no claim to outstanding strength on his own, but he prays in the second part of that last verse. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I have strayed like a lost sheep. He also says, seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. So think about it. Verse 25, preserve my life according to your word. Verse 28, preserve me according to your word. Verse 176, I have not forgotten your commandments. What does it tell us? It tells us that it is the word of God that keeps him going. To the very end and past the very end. In verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It's all very gloomy and dreary and wearisome, right? But that's not a full story. The way of the pilgrim is not all fighting and battle and tiredness and weariness. The pilgrim walks happily along for the word of God brings him refreshment and joy. Verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And in spite of all the threats and jeers from his enemies and hardships along the way, the pilgrim is at peace. Verse 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall make them stumble. This great peace that the psalmist talks about is the same peace or shalom that Paul, the Apostle Paul, describes in another favorite verse of many of us, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, a captured heart, enlightened mind, a fixed will, steady feet. These are the four facets of the pilgrim that we can learn from Psalm. You know, in, in, in some of the big cities in China, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou and all that, if you've been there, you will, you will see at train stations, bus interchanges, a picture like this. Thousands, thousands upon thousands, maybe sometimes millions of peasants and farmers carrying big bags of their belongings flooding in into the cities from the countryside. They can't find work on the farms. Off-season, poor crop harvests. Therefore, they have to feed their families. They can't do it where they are, in their farms. What do they do? They have to go to the cities and look for jobs. They are the Liu Tong Ren Kou. 
transient population, don't belong in those cities because they don't have rights to be there. But they have to be there for livelihood reasons, just to feed their families. And like the Samis and like the, these peasants, we are all transient population. We are pilgrims. We are sojourners on this earth. We don't belong here. But we must pass through this earthly life. We were privileged, and we are still privileged to have known the Lord, but our destination is somewhere else. Talking about the Old Testament heroes of faith, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, all these people, referring to those heroes, Abraham, Moses, Jephthah, Gideon, and all those people, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Verse 14, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have opportunity to return. Instead, verse 16, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. And brothers and sisters, friends, if, if we accept what the Bible says here, that we are foreigners and strangers and pilgrims on earth, then we should live like foreigners and strangers and pilgrims. Don't accumulate too much baggage, but we travel light. Don't get bogged down by the cares and the anxieties and the things of this world. Possessions, wealth, reputation, even relationships, however good and noble they are. Is it giving up too much to be a pilgrim? Yes, sometimes there are sacrifices to be made. And the devil would make life quite difficult for us. But, but, the journey is a journey of joy and spiritual blessing as we walk in obedience to God on this pilgrimage. Moreover, and this is an important point, we do not travel alone because all of us here are fellow pilgrims. And so, let us encourage one another on this journey together. Let us be steadfast in our walk with God and be faithful to the Word. Can I invite the musicians to come forward as we prepare for the closing song? Let's stand. Let's stand together. You know, many of us uh, are tired, right? We are, we are weary. I mean, I'm, I, we just came back from a long, long vacation across the globe, and I, I'm still jet-lagged. We wake up at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. But that aside, I think many of us are weary from the journeying, of the long journey as Christian pilgrims. There's opposition, there's discouragement, there is failure, there's a sense of being overwhelmed we are sometimes at the end of our wits. And if you are in that state, then can I encourage you, let's go back. Let's go back to that place where our hearts were first captured by God and be refreshed once again 
by His love and by His word. Sisters, as we continue to sing this song, let us renew our commitment to be faithful pilgrims. Our hearts captivated by His love, 
our minds enlightened by His Word, our wills fixed upon His will, and our feet steady and unwavering. Can I encourage you to make that prayer your own? And if you want to rededicate our lives to God, if you can, come forward and you will be prayed for by the leaders. Make public that rededication to the Lord, that you will be a faithful pilgrim journeying with the Lord. Let's sing the song again. this morning that your love is enough for us. We're reminded too that you have called us to be pilgrims on this earth, that our home is not here, that our home is elsewhere. And so Lord, we pray that you will help us to always keep that in mind. Thank you for the privilege of being captivated by your love, our hearts being captivated by you. Thank you for the privilege of our minds being enlightened by your word and our wheels fixed upon yours and our feet made steady by your grace and grace alone. Lord, we ask that you will continue to guide us and lead us through the ups and downs of our daily lives so that we may come once again to that place, as you have sung earlier, of divine exchange. 
And so we pray, Lord, as we go forth this Sunday into the coming week, direct our steps. May your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you, dear Lord Jesus. We pray and ask all this in your most precious name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The service is over.